Good morning. We're starting a new series this morning, which we're calling Rest and Reset, uh, where we'll be looking at some of the Psalms. We've taken the concept of this from two little half verses in Ephesians, the wonderful letter of Paul's to the church in Ephesus, verses 18b uh, and 19a in chapter 5, which read, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. We want to give space and to spend some time with God, especially unagendered time, as Jim has called it. Time, in other words, which is not during our Sunday morning meetings or during our home group evenings or prayer meetings, where we can reflect on what it is the Lord might be saying to us individually or as a community. Over the next little while, various people will talk about a psalm of their choosing, which has particular value and meaning to them in the hope that it will also have something helpful and sustaining to say to all of us during these very strange coronavirus-dominated times. It is my privilege to kick this off, so without further ado, I'm going to ask Claire, all the way from America, to read my choice to you. It is Psalm 51, and Claire will be reading from the NIV version. If you want to read along in your Bibles or on your Bible devices, please do so. And please forgive my smirk at the term Bible devices. But the truth is, I'm simply too old not to find it absolutely hilarious. I do have the Bible on my devices, but I'd never knowingly use a device in preference to a book and can confidently say it's unlikely I ever will. Still, each to their own. Claire. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. 
You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you very much, Claire. At first glance, it would be fair to say that this psalm doesn't immediately strike you as the most cheerful or exultant of the 150 possibilities open to me. There are two reasons for my choice. The first is that this psalm has given rise to my favourite piece of music. I first consciously heard it when I was a student over 40 years ago, and in all the time since, it has lost none of its power to move me in its simplicity and extraordinary beauty. It is the desert island disc I would run into the waves to save. Desert Island Discs, for those of you who may be unfamiliar with the programme, has been running on British radio for 72 years. In it, a public figure is cast away to an imaginary desert island with the Bible, the complete works of Shakespeare, eight pieces of music which we, the listeners, hear, and a book of his or her choice. They are also allowed one luxury, and are finally asked which of their eight records they'd rush to save if they could only keep one. I'll talk a bit more about this wonderful piece later. The second reason is that one of this psalm's verses is particularly dear to me, speaking as it does of God's unconditional love and forgiveness towards each one of us, and we'll come to that too. The first essential thing to do with this psalm is to set it in context. King David wrote it, having been confronted by the prophet Nathan after he, David, committed adultery with Bathsheba. This least impressive episode of David's life is written down in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I do encourage you to read that, but in outline, David sees Bathsheba bathing on her roof one night while her husband Uriah is away at war. He lusts after her, summons her, he's the king so he gets whatever he wants, sleeps with her and as a result of that she falls pregnant. David summons Uriah back from the the front but Uriah refuses for very noble reasons to avail himself of the comforts of his wife's bed. David had hoped to pass off the baby he'd fathered as Uriah's own. So David then resorts to plan B to cover up his adultery. Plan B is to put Uriah in the front line of battle so that he will be killed, and he duly is. David then marries Bathsheba, and nobody is any the wiser about his adultery or his betrayal of a trusted friend whose death he has engineered having first raped his friend's wife. No one knows, and David's reputation is safe. 
The trouble is, God knew. And through Nathan, made it clear to David that he knew. God spares David's life, but tells him again through Nathan that Bathsheba's baby boy will die. And that is what happens. David begs God not to take his son, but his son is nonetheless taken. And it is at this point, I suggest, that David wrote this psalm. He's at his lowest ebb, staring his own weakness and utter failure full in the face with no excuses to be made and nothing to be done by way of compensation or in mitigation of the evil that he alone has perpetrated. He is understandably and rightly for a man who follows God, utterly revolted and disgusted with himself. We do not have to have been responsible for somebody's death or to have committed some other unspeakable crime to learn from David here. The first thing to say it's, is that there is no attempt by David to shirk responsibility for what has happened. The first line of the first verse is, Have mercy upon me, O God. David is in no doubt that he is in need of mercy. Verse 2, Wash away all my iniquity. All that I have done is wrong, in other words. He knows there is absolutely nothing he can do to re-establish right relationship with God. Only God can make him clean. Twice in verse 2 and then again in verse 7, he uses the word cleanse. Verse 10 reads, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This would imply that David knows full well his own attempts to maintain his purity of heart have failed. It also acknowledges that although many times in the past David has demonstrated the steadfastness of his spirit, having shown obedience to God, excellent leadership as king and boundless courage throughout the course of his life, he needs God to renew his steadfast spirit. Again, his own efforts have patently failed, as is clear for all to see. He knows he has not got what he deserves. Verse 11, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. God has done neither of those things. Although, as David accepts throughout, he could have done, and nobody would have thought it harsh. You are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge, verse 4. In short, David makes no excuses. He doesn't draw attention to his hitherto unblemished record. He doesn't do what it's always so tempting to do, to say, I am sorry, but... Can I just remind you, Lord, of how well I've done to date? I am sorry, but means that our apology takes second place to our desire to let ourselves off the hook. There are mitigating reasons for our behaviour. We want people to know that. And there's also a reluctance to acknowledge to ourselves 
what we can be capable of. I don't believe there are many of us who, when faced with our own embarrassment or shame or potential humiliation, don't try to lessen it with a certain amount of self-justification or else to try to put the blame on somebody else entirely. There's a wonderful story my husband Toby tells of his mother being confronted by two small and very guilty-looking little boys, Toby and his elder brother, racing up their grandfather's garden, shouting, A dog did it! A dog did it! On investigation, the naughty dog had, very neatly, extracted a quantity of newly planted carrot seedlings from the earth and left them thoughtfully at the sides of the now empty holes. My mother-in-law's response was textbook. She apparently said, Oh, what a bad dog. Well, let's just put the carrots back so that Grandpa doesn't get upset which they duly did. Did Toby and Simon get away scot-free? I would say not, because to quote verse 3 of this psalm, and judging by the fact that he still tells this story the best part of 60 years later, Toby's sin is always before him. So David takes ownership of his sin, and we must learn to too. No excuses. And it is verse 3 which gives us the next point to consider. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. This is quite simply a statement of fact. It's not the way God wants it. God does not require us to beat ourselves over the head with our sins and shortcomings or to prove to him that we know how vile we are in order to prove ourselves worthy of his forgiveness. That is not what this means or what David is doing here. What David is saying is that he can never forget that he has betrayed and murdered his friend. He cannot undo the fact that he has raped a woman he desired, got her pregnant, and then caused her added heartbreak when, because of him, their baby died. The knowledge of what he did can never be unknown. Similarly, we cannot unknow all the times we've behaved badly or thoughtlessly. What this psalm shows us is that God not only can but will forgive us if we come to him humbly, knowing that without his grace and forgiveness we cannot know real peace. The Welsh poet R.S. Thomas puts it brilliantly at the end of his wonderful poem, The Kingdom. Present yourself with your need only and the simple offering of your faith, green as a leaf. Living our lives mired in low self-esteem and a crippling sense of our own unworthiness is not God's plan for us. Thirdly, David knows there is a correct order to things. He acknowledges that he needs to be right with God before he either teaches rebels God's ways, as Eugene Peterson puts verse 13 in the message, 
and before he offers sacrifices. In verses 16 and 19, he realises that God only delights in sacrifices after those offerings have got themselves after, sorry, after those offering them have got themselves right with him. If our attitude stinks, in other words, we can forget our ties and any form of offering. God is interested in our heart attitudes first. Everything else can only follow from that. And here is my favourite verse, verse 17. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. This does not mean God wants a cringing, self-loathing, abject church. Far from it. Peterson translates broken spirit as shattered pride. God wants us to realise that wholeness, peace and joy are available to us when we come to him and accept his love in all its abundance. Those of us who are Christian believe that we do this through accepting that God's love comes to us through Jesus, his beloved son, who died for each one of us, taking all our sin and shame on his shoulders so that we could approach the Father with our need only and our faith, green as a leaf. That sacrifice, which we have just celebrated at Easter, has now been made. Let's do a rapid overview of God's attributes as written by David in this psalm. In verse 1 alone, David mentions God's mercy, his unfailing love and his compassion. He can wash away all guilt. He is just. He can cleanse, create pure hearts, renew our spirits, restore joy. Not only can he wash away guilt, he can deliver us from it. It needn't rule our lives. He's not a fan of extravagant gestures, riches or sacrifice. He'd rather have a relationship with us, with us, than all that stuff. This is God as represented by the father in the parable of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. Just as the prodigal son himself is like David in Psalm 51. The father is simply overjoyed to see his son return. All is forgiven. The party can begin. David and the prodigal son can sink no lower. They know they don't deserve what they're asking for, God's love and forgiveness. But in each case, they receive them simply by acknowledging their need and putting their pride aside. I sometimes think that we can fall for the completely false idea that God is grudging with his grace and stingy with his forgiveness. This palm and this parable negate this utterly. Matthew Henry, the great 17th century commentator, describes Psalm 51 as eminent among the penitential psalms. Penitent does not mean cringing. It means, I'm so sorry. 
To me, the wonderful thing about it is the way we can see God as he really is, a loving father who will never turn his back on us if we choose to come to him with, I'm so sorry, rather than, I am sorry, but... And the piece of music? No surprise to some of you, but it is the Miserere, written by Gregorio Allegri in the first half of the 17th century. For decades, nobody was allowed to write down the music for the Miserere on pain of excommunication from the Catholic Church. And then in 1770, a certain musical clever clogs called Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart heard it performed twice and wrote it out perfectly from memory at the age of 14 to our enduring benefit. I am a linguist by inclination and I take huge delight in the fact that the title of this piece, the Miserere, sounds like our English word misery, although that is not in fact its precise meaning. The composer's name is Allegri, similar to the French Allegresse and the Spanish Alegria, both meaning joy. For me, Psalm 51 is much more about the joy of being right with God than it is about what miserable, lowly worms we all are. It's not about us. It's about him. If you'd like to hear the Miserere, several versions can be accessed on YouTube, and I recommend you listen to it loudly and possibly even without the visuals. May it bless you as it unfailingly does me. Shall we pray? Father God, thank you that your love is unfailing, unconditional, and extends to each of us when we come to you, knowing that you can make us clean. And so, Father God, may we rejoice in your generosity and all that you are and lay before you all our weaknesses, sin, disappointment, knowing that you can redeem them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.